Coming up in this episode. She, our little boy, Joseph, suddenly came early and he only survived for two hours and he, and he died. And, and this was like, you know, heartbreaking, our last chance, basically, you know, and to, to hold your baby and to, to, to watch him struggle and die. And it was, it was, it, that was like the worst thing I've ever been through. Um, and even in this horrifying situation, if you like, there were, there were moments of joy, moments of blessings, and the blessings that our little boy brought to us. I, you know, I, it took me a few weeks, but when I, when I now think on my little boy, I think what he left behind, you know, like the changes he, he created in me, the changes he created in my husband, the, our surrogate parents, we're extremely close now to our surrogate parent family, to their children. Um, my husband is a, a firefighter and he's now become an officer, which he wouldn't do before because he was like, oh, I'm, I'm too shy and too whatever. And now he's like, no, my little boy didn't get to live. I'm going to live full bore. Stuff it, you know. So he, so so little little Joseph brought blessings in a, in a way that we couldn't see at the time, and 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 I don't wish that on anyone, and I certainly don't want to go through that again. But it could either break you, or you can try to find something in there that has meaning for you and a reason for you. And so, no matter what you're going through in life, try to think of it as well. This is going to be a part of something that I'm meant to be learning, and I can turn this around. And that's, I think, your job when you're on this earth is to, you know, try and have these lessons and become stronger and better and not let it break you. Welcome to the HVMN podcast. What we do with our bodies today becomes the foundation of who we are tomorrow. This is Health Via Modern Nutrition. Welcome to this week's episode of the HVMN Podcast. And this is going to be an especially fun one because my guest today is Lisa Tamati. And I had a wonderful conversation on her podcast. So for today, we're going to flip the script, flip the table, and have Lisa share her experience. In a lot of my conversations over the last few years now, when you really talk to world-class specialists in one specific domain, they oftentimes touch and become generalist experts across a multitude of domains. And I think that's just the world that we live in. To be really, truly world-class, one can't just be in that one specific tunnel. One really gets the best practice from a number of domains. And I think Lisa really encapsulates that for me. So Lisa, great to have you on the HVN podcast. I'm so stoked to be here, Jeffrey. It was wonderful to have you on my show. And yeah, now to flip the script is going to be exciting. I can't wait to do a deep dive. Yeah. <laughs> One area that you have a tremendous amount of experience and I have a little bit of a taste of is ultra marathons, long distance running. I think that seems to be your initial entry point into high performance, human physiology. Um, love to hear your background story of how you got into it, you know, competing Badwater, some of the most prestigious, well-known ultra marathon races. What was your journey into this specific field? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Um, so yeah, I've been doing ultra marathons now for over twenty-five years, um, and I've had in that time the chance to sort of run and compete and train over seventy thousand k's in that time. So about three times around the equator, if you add it all up. Um, I've done um, mostly deserts. So I've done a couple of thousand kilometers in the Sahara Desert from the 
Moroccan Sahara a couple of times to the Tunisian, the Arabian Desert, the Libyan Desert, Niger, Jordan, uh, also the Gobi Desert in China, uh, Death Valley in the USA a couple of times in different parts of the outback of Australia, which is but closer to home. Um, and I've also at one stage ran right through New Zealand um, doing 52 marathons in 42 days, uh, raising money for charity. So that was another a really amazing mission. But, you know, the, the thing, the funny thing about my story is that I'm so what from average as, as far as talent goes, I don't have any. Um, gen, I don't have any special genetic abilities. I'm, um, I'm no Dean Canassis or David Goggins or, or anything like that as far as ability and speed go. But what I, what I did have was a really, really super strong mindset. And when I decide I want something, I just do it until I get good at it, even if I'm hopeless at it at the start. Um, and certainly I was an asthmatic as a child. So I was in and out of hospital. I had a very poor lung capacity, um, you know, very poor VO2 max. Um, so I wasn't really made or built for this type of thing, but um, I never let that stop me doing anything really. <laughs> yeah. So what kicked it off? I, when I talked to a lot of folks that end up being just long careers in endurance sport, oftentimes it's realizing that in middle school that they were really good at the 5K compared to their <laughs> other middle schoolers. Did you have a story like that where you ended up running and you realized, hey, I'm pretty good at this. Everyone else is tired and I'm, I'm pretty good. No, I was absolutely bloody hopeless at it, to be honest, Jeff. Um, what, what happened is I, I was really into – I was into sport. I was a gymnast as a, as a kid. I was I was good at gymnastics. And so I, I did that from the ages of five up to about 15. And um, I was on sort of track to be a national sort of gymnast. But then when I went through puberty, I grew up too tall and I grew up, you know, very mu muscular and athletically built. And I was, I was just not – I just didn't have it. Once I went through puberty, I knew I just wasn't going to make it. And and so that was a real blow to me because that was all I'd done. And I'd, I'd grown up in a family uh, where the expectations were really, really high. Um, and I was expected to rep represent my country and I was expected to be the best at everything that I did. I had, you know, I had an amazingly loving, amazing mum and, and dad, but my dad was also very hard on us. And um, that I think having that early childhood you know, being pushed into the <clears throat> really strict discipline that, that gymnastics requires was in some ways a really good learning curve and in other ways it was quite damaging. Um, as a, so as a young woman, so, you know, from 13 to 15, you know, before I started, um, I stopped gymnastic, I really struggled with my body image and um, I was the heaviest, biggest girl in the group, if you like, and and was always constantly ridiculed for that. And and so that that, that started a path of, of self-loathing and um, very low self-esteem. And when I failed at gymnastics, I thought, well, that's it. You know, I'm never going to represent New Zealand. But I sort of had that dream in my back of my mind the whole time. Um, and then in my... Um, Early 20s, uh, I met a, an Austrian guy who uh, was cycling through our country here and had an accident on our mountain. Uh, got hit by an avalanche, and my mum, being the sort of mum she was, she always picking up strays and bringing them home and looking after <laughs> them, <laughs> as mums do. And she brought this young gentleman home, and and we fell in love and doing lots of adventure stuff around the world. So we cycled around uh, 25 different countries. Uh, climbed mountains, kayaked, you know, did all that sort of adventurous stuff. And that sort of opened my eyes to the world of travel because I'd never been outside my country prior to that. 
um, into the to the world of adventure and to what I was capable of. But it was also at the same time a very abusive relationship. And once again, I was never good enough. I was never I was never what I was supposed to be. I was I could never live up to the expectations. I wasn't fast enough, strong enough, good enough. I was accused of having bad genes <laughs> at one point. Um, <clears throat> and um, this sort of culminated, I, I did a crossing of the Libyan Desert, an expedition with the, with the partner and two other guys. This was a really extreme illegal crossing of the Libyan Desert. And we only had like two litres of water a day because that's all we could carry on our backs with this distance of 250 kilometres that we had planned. And no one had been through, or no no Europeans had been through this part of the desert at this stage. Um, there were no maps. We, we we managed to get some pilot maps of the US military. Don't know, don't ask how. Um, and and we we started off on this crossing and, and two liters of water a day in forty plus degree temperatures with thirty five kilo backpacks was a recipe for you know extremely that's a on serious the rock. Yeah, that's a serious <laughs> rock. Wow. Yeah, especially when I was like. 58, 59 kilos at the time. So <laughs> it was more than like, you know, well, ne- nearly two thirds of my body weight. Um, and and this w- ended up being not only physically really demanding, but the, the boyfriend uh, ended up leaving me in the middle of the desert on day four. Um, we were all under a, yeah, so that, you know, you can imagine you have your, your <clears throat> you know, relationship breakups. We've all been there and done that. But to do that in the middle of the Libyan desert, <laughs> in the middle of this crossing, um, and the, the the reason was <clears throat> we were all suffering and very irritable, as you can imagine, when you can't, you've got no water. And so tempers were short and um, he wanted to move faster and he was, uh, we were doing a book on the expedition, so f- f- uh, photographing it. And he was a perfectionist and wanted to set up all these photos and wanted me to help. And the leader of the expedition said, look, uh, we got to keep moving. So you can take your pictures, but you've got to keep up with us. Um, and so he wanted me to help with that. And I physically was just unable to run around, and do anything extra other than put one foot in front of the other. <clears throat> and so that went down like a, a ton of bricks. And after a couple of days of you know, frosty temperatures and in the, in the between the, between us, um, he just said, "That's it. I'm leaving. I'm heading off over the sand dunes, and you can stay with the other two guys." And that's it. The relationship's over. So that was a real deep turning point. And it sounds quite funny now, but it wasn't at the time. <laughs> so I can assure you. And we're in desperate straits by this time. The dehydration is so so bad. I don't know whether he's going to survive. Whether we're going to survive. What, what's going to happen? And in that moment, I, I really learned I had to compartmentalize things in my brain. So I had to be able to function despite the emotional t- uh, turmoil that I was going through. And um, that was a really good lesson to learn so that you can actually still function and do what you have to do to survive, to get out and and not fall to pieces. And of course, I owed that to the other two guys too, who were like, oh my God, we've got to you know, hysterical woman here now. What do we do now? <laughs> Don't think. <laughs> this story deserves more attention. I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean, just just from the emotional capacity, obviously a breakup with a long-term partner is a, emotion, is a massive emotional yeah. turmoil. And then it sounds like there was questions of even surviving. So yes, at the time, was. did you think that everyone could have died? Uh, how serious? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it was pretty serious, but... Did you have regrets or, or thoughts racing through your mind where you're like, hey, like, why did I do this? Am I going to die in the desert? 
uh, I'm stupid. <laughs> Can you walk us through that? It's kind of the thought process there. The, the, the thirst was just unbelievable. Like the, the suffering that goes on when you don't have enough water is really, really horrific. So, you know, your mouth swells, your lung, your, t- um, your tongue swells, your, your, you, you just, you got no saliva, so you can't eat, obviously. Um, and you're just in a, in a we were covering uh, around 45 kil- kilometers a day, or we were trying to, um, so that we would have enough to get out. So we had a schedule that we had to keep, and we were trying to avoid going uh, in the very hot hours of the day, but we- there was often no shade, so you just like sort of put your backpack up and try and hide under it. Um, so it was extreme as far as w- would we survive, and it was a military barred area as well, and so leaving the oasis was really dangerous and getting out from outside the military camp and then disappearing into the desert without being followed and by the same token getting back in. So you had all that sort of stuff going on as well. And if you'd been caught in this area, you would have been, you know, in deep, deep trouble, shall we say. Um, so there was, there was those sort of elements to it. And then like on day when, – when, the, when the, the partner left – I had to just stop thinking about whether he would survive or not. I knew that he was extremely strong, extremely fit, but all it takes is one twisted ankle and you're, you're gone, you know. Um, there was no, there's no one to come and rescue you. There's no one to help. There was no outside help at all and there was no water on, on route. So there wasn't much chance of survival if anything went wrong. Now, I was with the other two guys, and uh, the, the, the leader of the expedition was a survival expert from Yugoslavia, and he, he was amazing, you know. So he, he all I had to do was really follow him and do what, do what he said, and that's what we did. Um, on day five, um, I had real – we had a sandstorm hit in the, just as the evening broke, and it came in so suddenly because I was doing most of my drinking of the water in the nighttime, and because that's when your cells could take it up. If you if you drank during the day, it would just evaporate out of your body really quickly. Mm. So we were trying to drink the bulk of our of our supply for the day and the evening. And I'd also been squirreling away part of that two liters a day. So I was actually only getting a, a liter and a half in because I was so scared of running out so that I had a, a, you know more left in the backpack than I was meant to have. You know, and on this particular night, the sandstorm came in. And I didn't get to drink my water because it was just, you know, we just got in our sleeping bags and just hunkered down, and we basically got buried by the sandstorm. You couldn't, you couldn't do anything for the next five or six hours while this passed through. And then at about three in the morning, we got up again and we got going really quickly. And I only had a small drink, and then I got underway. And by funnily, by now I was not really feeling the thirst anymore. And I was um, walking in the in the early hours of this morning, and I just kept passing out, and my body was starting to shut down. But Elvis was on such a mission to get to the certain point that we he'd see on the map, so then he would know where we were exactly, and that we would survive. That he was just on a mission; he wouldn't stop to let me get water out of the backpack, and and he just kept they could keep putting me back on my feet. I'd go along for another twenty minutes, and then I'd pass out again. They'd put me back up again. I'd walk along again. They'd pass out again. This happened like five or six times until we got to this place where we could see this. We were uh, it's called the Barviti Depression. So you were up on this tabletop uh, landscape, and then you're looking down. And so then he knew where we were. And by now I was hallucinating. So the the rocks were becoming monsters, and 
I was completely, I, and I didn't even know to ask for a break, if that makes sense. All I was doing was functioning by putting one foot in front of the other and I couldn't think straight. My my vision was closing in, um, hallucinations and so on. What kept you going? I mean, it sounds like this, was it just reptilian survival instinct, just one foot after another? Was there something higher where like, I'm not going to die today? Or was it like, like, where were you in the state? It just sounds like you are so so close baseline functioning right it was just like it's just like you're on essentially just baseline survival function at this point yeah it's at this point it was it was there was no higher thinking at all you know there was just i'd been doing this for days just following the footsteps of the guy in front of me and that was what i was mesmerized on just this little white flicker of his shoes in front of my eyes and that's all i focused on on doing because it just could not think any higher thoughts when you when you run out of glucose and when you run out of water your brain function is just it it's like being completely out of it so I was just doing everything I could just to stay upright and keep moving forward and um, not thinking and not being intelligent you are unable in this case to make clear decisions or anything like that or to say look hey I need to stop and get some water guys you know Uh, and you're on this sort of mission and you're just going and it's just pure survival that keeps you putting one foot in front of the other uh, and then once we got to this place he helped me down the, the these cliffs and we got to the bottom and he said right I want you to get out your water and you're going to drink and we're going to sit here for the next two hours and you're going to slowly drink your whole day's supply because you're you know your 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 body's starting to shut down and you know he said to me look he'd, he'd been in the desert a lot he said I, I've known of people who've died in the desert with 20 liters of water next to them because they've been squirreling it away for so long he said it's better in your tummy than in the backpack in other words I I hadn't been having enough just to keep surviving and you can actually die next to a whole big ton of water but because you're squirreling it away for too long and then your body shuts down and then you're gone you know can go too far so the upshot of this uh, adventure was anyway we did get out we did survive obviously um (laughs) and um Uh, I had some major kidney damage and and, uh, health problems after this. Um, The the boyfriend also got out and, uh, you know, uh, there was a lot of undoing of of messy relationship stuff, as you can imagine, in the aftermath. But there was a time in my life where I went and never again will I not, when I let myself be controlled by anybody else, never again am I not controlling my own destiny. And it took me two years to do anything again because my body was just wrecked and emotionally I was wrecked. But then one day I was reading this magazine and it, it was about the Marathon de Sables, which is a very famous ultra marathon in Morocco. And I was reading the statistics and comparing it to what I'd been through the Libyan desert. So we'd done 250 Ks, we'd had 35 kilo backpacks, two liters of water a day, right? And Marathon de Sables is touted at that time as the toughest race on earth, 240 kilometers, nine liters of water a day, doctors, journalists, airplanes, helicopters, support. You're you like, know. this sounds easy. This sounds like a luxury <laughs> Clamp, glamping. Yeah. 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 So you had to carry everything in your back as far as the food goes, but that was like between nine and 12 kilos. Um, and I thought, hang on a minute, I reckon I could do this. And so I hadn't even run a marathon, but I, I signed up for this 240K event. And it was the first time I'd done something on my own, uh, it, you know, as a, as a 
girl on her own now. And, and it was really important to me to prove to myself that I wasn't useless. And I went and I did this race and I just absolutely loved it. I did really, really well. I uh, didn't win anything, but I was um, I was in the top 10 women um, and, and I just had an absolute ball. I was surrounded by people who were positive and encouraging and empowering and there was 700 people in this race and the whole camp moves every day. It was like a huge military operation. It was just mind-blowing. And after that experience, I started to get my self-confidence back that had been on the ground for the last two years, you know. Um, and and I became addicted to that experience, if you like, because I was like, oh, give me more of this. This is awesome. And, I'm, and, I, and I was good at something for a change. I was told I was doing really well and the other people were so uplifting that then I became like addicted to ultra marathons. So then I just signed up for every race I could possibly find and, <laughs> and just did one after the other and sort of worked it out as I went. And so long story short, that's how I got into ultra marathon running. And now I understand why you put mindset as first tier as well, the ultra marathon. I mean, it sounds like almost from your perspective, your mindset and that emotional and cognitive resilience to go through when you were 13 and 15 as an adolescent you know, athlete towards some of these survival trips. Is that, would you say that's accurate? You almost see yourself as uh, like a mental ninja or a mental resilience expert ahead of being an endurance athlete at this point? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Certainly it's become that over the, even, you know, the last 20 years, um, especially, whereas like, like I said, I never had had a lot of talent, but I, and I realized I had, I did have really good mental strength when it came to certain areas, especially in sport. I had a mindset that I could just go and I would, I would go to the point of killing myself nearly, you know, so um, which also became a problem on occasion because, you know, you just wouldn't pull out when you should pull out. And now I'm a lot wiser and um, don't advise people to do that. And now we coach, you know, hundreds of athletes around the world and we try to get them to pull out way before that point. Um, um, but, yes, you know what You know what? the greatest benefit of doing all these ultramarathons and, and pushing your body to the limits like this is that it is. It teaches you mental toughness. It teaches you resilience. It teaches you that failure is a part of the game as well. Uh, that you know, if we only go through life being scared of failure, we're never going to take risks. We're never going to push the envelope. We're never going to find out what we're truly capable of. And if there's one thing I've learned through through this whole journey, uh, it's it's that failure is a part of pushing to the limits. When you're going to that sort of level, even in business or in you know, whatever it is in life, you are going to have failures and that is part of it and you have to get over that and you have to learn resilience. And I think resilience is a word that is totally underutilized in our <laughs> society and it's something we should be teaching all our kids about the, the resilience to be able to get up when you're knocked down, the resilience to be able to believe that you can still achieve even when things are stacked against you or when people are telling you no and it's impossible. Um that's the, that's the thing that has helped me most. You know, running from A to B in some artificial human-made race, if you like, um, or climbing a mountain or doing any of these things, that that's just a 
it's a conduit to learning who the hell you are. Yeah, it's an artificial construct. It's like a game to yep. actually bring out the resilience at that person, that character, that integrity. Exactly. I'm actually, I, I something. This is something that I've been thinking a lot about, and I'm glad you're bringing this up. Um, for the specific resilience, where do you think that resilience came from? Do you believe? I mean, this might be like a nature versus nurture question. Um, yeah. You know, do you think that there's some sort of genetic disposition that uh, predisposes certain people? towards having this kind of emotional and cognitive resilience. But also part of that is that it sounds like through your childhood, through your environment, through your upbringing, you had pretty early, shall I say, traumatic or formational experiences as you're competing um, that probably gave you some sort of either a trauma that you healed really well from or gave you a lot of experience that people never actually face with like a happy, normal childhood or, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Do you think those were powerful formational experiences that led you down that path? Uh, how do you how do you think about it when you're coaching clients, coaching different folks? Obviously, you, you realize that some people just seem tougher than others, right? Like you hear like, yeah, I think your story is reminds me a lot of David Goggins story, who was a former Navy SEAL, ultra endurance athlete, done some, had a lot of trauma through his childhood. How do you synthesize uh, your personal experience as well as the experiences that you've called and, and pulled through your, your coaching and, and your journeys around the world? Yeah, that's a really good uh, question. And yes, you know, like um, David's uh, stories are, are incredible and in his childhood, terrible, obviously, and that's what made him who he is, a, a lot of it. I, I actually think there's a combination of nature and nurture. Um, so I'm right into epigenetics and I know uh, we use a, um, a system called PH360, which is looking at uh, different types of people and different health types and I am uh, what they call a crusader which is someone who's on a always going to be dopamine driven and on a mission um, tendency towards addictive behavior whether that's running stupid distances or eating too much chocolate um, you know <laughs> same sort of thing um, and and so this I, I think my brothers often say to me, why are you always on a mission? Why are you trying to conquer the world all the time and everything that you do? Why can't you just sit back and relax and have a day at the beach like we do, you know? And I say, well, it's like asking a table not to be flat. This is who I am. This is my makeup. This is the way I'm made. And I can't do anything much about that. So I do think that a, a, a big part of the, the, the drive and the determination is genetically uh, predispositioned. Like mum said, even as a, a three-year-old, I would be off, you know, diving into the pool when I couldn't swim or, you know, I just had no fear. I would be doing stupid stuff, you know, um, and as, as a kid without any sort of idea of what the heck I'm doing. Um, and that has always been um, characteristic of my nature to just jump into things and work it out on the way so I think there is a big portion of of genetics and by the same token I think the combination of that with some very harsh experiences um, and these are experiences too like don't get me wrong the self-esteem the lack of confidence in my and you know after that relationship there were massive depression suicide attempts you know there were a lot there's a lot of stuff that I'm not going into the details of to come out the other end, if you know what I mean. So it, it wasn't like you're just like 
wow, the super resilient person who just gets back up again. You know, it, it, it certainly wasn't in the young years when you didn't have, when I didn't have the toolkit either to be able to cope with the emotions that I'm feeling. And when you're younger, you've got a whole lot of hormones and stuff going around and you're very dramatic, as you know, with all teenagers, they're all dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I was probably super dramatic. Um, <laughs> So, you know, there was a lot of stuff and this is a process and, and I'm, you know, old now. <laughs> it's very easy for me now to look back at the journey. Um, you know, I'm 50, 51 going on 18. I still think I'm a teenager. But <laughs> looking back over that time and going, actually, I can see the progression. I can see how I developed. I can see the highs and the lows. And it all makes sort of a sense now, if you know, if you like. And we don't always have that, that that benefit of hindsight when you're in the middle of it. All you know is that you're depressed and you, you know, you don't want to be here anymore. Um, but if you can actually look at things from a bigger, longer term perspective and go, this might be a part of making me who I am. And now every situation that I get into that really blows me to pieces or gets, you know, is really hard or tragic, and I've been through quite a lot in my life. Um. I now look at it and the first thing I try to think is, is where is the learning here? Where is the silver lining? What is it that I'm meant to be learning from this experience and how can I turn this into a positive? And it doesn't always come to me uh, quickly. I mean, last year we had a situation, uh, we've been, my husband and I have been trying to have a baby for, for years. We'd lost um, one when I was 46 um, in, a, in a miscarriage and then I had a surrogate mum and we were over the moon. We thought we were finally going to have a baby. And um, six months into it, she, our little boy Joseph suddenly came early and he only survived for two hours and he, and he died. And, and this was like, you know, heartbreaking, our last chance basically, um, you know, and to, to hold your baby and to, to, to watch him struggle and die. And it was, it was, it, that was like the worst thing I've ever been through. Um, and even in this horrifying situation, if you like, there were there were moments of joy, moments of blessings, and the blessings that our little boy brought to us. I, you know, I, it took me a few weeks, but when I when I now think on my little boy, I think what he left behind. You know, like the changes he he created in me, the changes he created in my husband, the, our surrogate parents. We're extremely close now to our surrogate parent family, to their children. Um, my husband is a, a firefighter and he's now become an officer, which he wouldn't do before because he was like, oh, I'm, I'm too shy and too whatever. And now he's like, no, my little boy didn't get to live. I'm going to live full bore. I stuff it, you know. So he, so so little little Joseph bought blessings in a, in a way that we couldn't see at the time, and 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 I don't wish that on anyone, and I certainly don't want to go through that again. But it could either break you, or you can try to find something in there that has meaning for you and a reason for you. And so, no matter what you're going through in life, try to think think of it as well. This is going to be a part of something that I'm meant to be learning, and I can turn this around. And that's, I think, your job when you're on this earth is to, you know, try and have these lessons and become stronger and better and not let it break you. Yeah, well, I, I think that's an incredible framework that you've really, I think, internalized and really tested to the limits, right? How do you turn every single 
injection interruption happenstance that occurs in one's life and how do you take the positive from that and it sounds like you've been able to really internalize it so well that you're really testing the bounds of of of, of human experience there i think and also i mean i've had lots of i mean we've gone pretty deep and it's pretty emotional this topic um to to, to lighten things up a little bit, I mean, I've had the most crazy adventures and most fun, you know, running things like Death Valley in the US, which is a really well-known race that you probably know about. Yeah. Um, and, you know, our friend David Goggins has done and Dean Canassis and, um, and, and, and doing those events where it's just been absolute highlights of my life, you know, to, to, to have those achievements. And when, so by the same token that you, um, you know, you have these horrible things that happen to you and you have to get through them. Then you have these amazing experiences that were, you know, obviously challenging and hard and the and the, the discipline and, and all of that sort of stuff that you learn along the way. But these are, these are also life-changing moments where you've achieved something. Like Death Valley was a dream for 15 years of mine before I actually got there and got a slot in that race and, and had enough money to go and um, – you know, and and the 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 boyfriend that had left me in the Libyan desert, he'd cycled through Death Valley in the middle of summer, and so he was always like, "Oh yeah, I cycled through Death Valley." And so in the back of my mind, I was like, "One day I'm going to run through Death Valley." Like I'm later, show him. later when <laughs> I'm going to show him, <laughs> and uh, I did, I did, I went, I ran through it twice. I'd done it twice, and and it was a as a crazy. That was another life changing event for me because it opened up the world. I ended up um, doing, you know, a lot of documentaries after that, books and and so on. So, you know, <clears throat> there's been some amazing things. And this is the this is the beauty of life. We don't have to be stuck in a box. You know, um, we, we have the ability to reinvent ourselves. I mean, you, Jeffrey, are a prime example of someone. You know. Stanford University, computer scientists. Now you're just creating a new you and a new world and a new direction that actually is what you want to do now, you know? And and th- none of us have to be limited anymore, and certainly not this day and age, by one profession. You know, like when I, I write what I do, you know, it's everything from podcasting to filmmaking to book writing to coaching to mental toughness courses to you know everything and and none of that is a contradiction (laughs) yeah i want to yeah i want to step back and just maybe turn this into more of a culture commentary because i feel like a lot of modern society and culture is at least i sense there's a lot of it's a form of anesthesia just numbing kind of an existential angst of why what is one's purpose and then I think there's also a big stream of living vicariously through others, right? People aren't doing the Death Valley run themselves. They're watching you, Lisa, doing that Death Valley run or watching and, and living through other people. And that, that is a hallmark of our time, really, you know, with all the movies and social media. Right. It's very and easy just to sit on the couch and think, wow, I've just been to all over the place. <laughs> right. And I think it's a little bit of both because they, I think a lot of people, have this they 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 live vicariously through others which gives up that excitement but it's also an anesthesia for the day-to-day boredom or angst of not being satisfied with what they're doing i mean do you sense that with the broader broader cultural context of our times i think there's a real massive disconnect nowadays from um the way human beings used to be so out in nature all day digging the fields hunting deer building their houses, doing whatever, you know, pushing the limits, exploring. We don't have to do any of that anymore because we live in a, in a world where it's all that's all done for us. 
and yet we live in the stressful times of you know computers and technology and um, crazy jobs and a lot of confinement and we're going from one box of, in our house to another box in the car to another box at work in an office uh, and, and all of this has disconnected us from our true roots and our ancestral way of being you know and this is at odds with our DNA I, I think you know and, and the way our bodies are meant to function and so I think this is causing a disconnect um, especially with young people who don't you know know that they have to get outside and get in the sunshine and get that vitamin D on their skin and get away from those damn computers and um, video games and all, all of that sort of stuff. And so when that happens, we have all sorts of problems come up, hormone dysregulation, uh, circadian rhythms are stuffed up, women with their cycles are stuffed up. Um, we, we're disconnected from nature and I think the more – that we can get outside, get back to some very basics that the human body needs. So I, I work in, you know, I run my own businesses. I'm 24-7 sort of thing around, you know, going for it all the time. But I make sure every day I get time to train in nature, push my body out in the, in the you know, physically outdoors and connect with the sea, the forest, the mountains, wherever I can, you know. And even if I've only got 10 minutes to sit in the city park, I know that it's important for my soul to be able to connect with nature. And it's important on a, a hormone level. It's important on a personality level and, and all of these areas that are just being neglected now. And, and we can sit at home and be entertained 24-7 on our devices. And this is a huge danger, I think, for for the human race because we we shouldn't be living in the matrix we're meant to be out there actually experiencing it ourselves you know getting in the water going for runs walking in the park whatever it is um and interacting with other human beings on a on a on a eye to eye level i mean you know we're lucky we have this technology and i can connect with you which i never would have been able to do in the past but by the same token, it's important that I go today and I see my family and I look them in the eye and I have that social interaction with them. And all of these things are missing from many people's lives. So there's, there's a, the element of loneliness. There's the element of all these dysregulation that's going on in our bodies and our circadian rhythms and hormones and so on. This all leads down a track of very often depression, being dissatisfied in life, and then maybe you're in a job that you feel trapped in or you don't have a job, you know, or you don't know what you want to be. It, we, we, we have to create our own framework and our own destiny and we have the power. We live in a time where we can actually, through this amazing technology, access so many things that we never could have before. There is no reason for any single person to not be doing something on a mission, creating their own business, doing something on the side to get them out of the job that they don't like, whatever. It, but it's up to up to you and your mindset to to understand there is no what knight in shining armor coming to save you. You have to make things happen. And you, Jeff, do that, obviously. You just decided I'm into the keto and the intermittent fasting. Right, I'm going to, you know, and I don't know the whole story, obviously. I'm going to go and make this happen. And you start a new business and you started a business and sold it at 23. You know, like I didn't know which way was up at 23, to be honest. <laughs> I, and I think if you look at just how every single story, every single interesting, whether it's a historical figure, 
everyone started from somewhere and someone decided to do something and it compounded and grew and you learned over time, right? And I think one interesting maybe first step to inspire people to build that mental toughness, what at least for my experience, was doing some of these longer runs. I remember the first time some of my colleagues at HVMN who are marathoners and triathletes, they kind of just challenged me casually to do a half <laughs> marathon. And, you know, I'm not, you know, I never was a good endurance runner. And the notion of running for an hour was just seemed like very intimidating. And I imagine for most people that are casual athletes or, you know, casual folks that go to the gym, running a mile on a treadmill is like a pretty solid day, uh, you know, warm up or a pretty solid effort. Um, but I think what I took out of that experience and having done, you know, a couple ultra marathons, um, was that it, going back to your point, I, th I think it's more interesting for me as a mental challenge than an aerobic bout. It just being in your own head for a couple hours, for three hours, four hours, five hours, uh, not listening to music, that, that's, that's almost a forced meditation in, in some perspective. It is. It is. <laughs> and I think, especially in our day and age, you never are really alone without your devices for a two, three, four, five hours. And I think that's an interesting little small entry point into tapping into that notion of resilience and, and, and self-actualization. Um, so I'm curious to get your thoughts on that in that route, but also just going back to the notion of critting one's, one's own destiny. And I think just from a historical perspective, you look at all the great historical figures, you know, from a Steve Jobs to a Genghis Khan, everyone was some child with some interesting upbringing and they figured out some things well, they, they made some mistakes and, uh, but I think the thing is that they, they didn't really stop, right? And I think your story is definitely a story of not stopping. Yeah, and congratulations for, for stepping up to those challenges and doing those runs because the, the thing is when it's, it, it's the same as when um, like someone might look at you and go, wow, what a brain and he's, he's super intelligent and I could never do that. And I bet you just went, I'm, I'm just going to take this one step at a time. I'll start my degree. I'll do this paper. I'll do it. And, and, and suddenly you, your world starts to expand, doesn't it? And you're capable. And then you find out, holy heck, I am pretty amazing. What I've achieved. And it's the same thing with running. You start off, and I'm, we coach 700 athletes now, and I've coached thousands over the years. And I've taken people from running from one lamppost up to running 100 miles. So I know that process. And and I, you, you you start with people you don't you don't talk to them like one day you're going to run a hundred miler, you start with them like we just got to get to that lamppost down there and I'm going to teach you the way to run and the way to breathe, and and a lot of people don't even know how to breathe and then they suddenly realise oh heck I actually can run for half an hour I thought that would be impossible, and once you have those initial successes you get them breathing correctly you get them taking smaller steps for starters, uh, you, you teach them a few technique things and then they get that that's that's those first initial wins, and that's where you start. And then within weeks, you can have them running their first 5K often, you know, if they're, if they're healthy, normal people. They just don't know how to run. And all of a sudden, now their, their horizon is lifted to that level. And then you, you, you repeat that process up to 10Ks, up to 20Ks, and then they run into a brick wall, and they don't know how to get from a half marathon to a marathon, and then you show them the way through that. And they may have a couple of failures on the way where they run out of glycogen, and you, you, you deal with these things as they happen – and then all of a sudden, they're signing up for their first ultra. 
and then the world's open to them. And then they understand that this is just one foot in front of the other, having a good coach, having good structure, not burning yourself out, doing things in the right order, getting your recovery, you know, doing all of that sort of good stuff. And then all of a sudden the horizons are lifted. And this is a beautiful thing. When you cross the finish line of something, say, like Death Valley, it, it is a moment that is a culmination of, in that case, 15 years worth of work to get there. And you've stood on the shoulders of all your teammates. You've learned so much about who you are along the way. It's not just about that journey. And then you're capable in your life. There is nothing that is going to hold you back. There is no limitations then to what you can do. But you also have, you realize you have to be willing to pay the price for all of those things. You have to be willing to go to the, the nth degree. You have to be willing. When you did those runs, I bet there was times where you were in a lot of pain and you were suffering and your body's screaming at you, why, Jeff, just sit down. Why are you doing this? And that, <laughs> like, who, who are you trying to impress here, you know? <laughs> yeah, I remember that one of the first half marathons was like, it was on uh, the team lunch, I think on a Wednesday. And then uh, our, our my former colleague, Brianna, who rode for Great Britain and converted to doing uh, Ironmans, was like, hey, you should do a half marathon this week. And I'm like, just like running along the Embarcadero in San Francisco. I'm like, it's like, it's like, it's like mile like seven. I'm like, why am I doing this? Like my, my feet start hurting, you know, it's like, and it, it's, you're just like by yourself. Everyone, all the tourists are just like confused. Like why this person's like running, like just these back and forth along the Embarcadero. Maybe I don't want to be overly conceited, but I feel like at a certain point, like humans were just designed to be able to run oh, yeah. five, oh, 10 yeah. miles. And I feel like in a, more helpful society it should be almost table stakes to be able to just blast out 10 miles on a dime right like i think i would love to live in a society where that's just table stakes where you would expect people to be able to walk across the street it shouldn't you know any healthy person should be able to run a few miles yeah i mean obviously you've got disabilities or whatever it's different but if you're just a normal healthy human being then yes and there's a book by my friend um chris mcdougall born to run and that's all about the fact that humans are born to run and we had a tv series along this line that we uh, tried to get off the ground we got the pilots done and we looked at um ancestral stories of of long distance running in different cultures right around the world from the mount hei monks to the Kalahari Bushmen to the Navajo Indians to the Maori in New Zealand, all of these ancestral people covered huge distances on foot, uh, whether that was running, walking, but they were moving, you know, pedestrian. That's that's what we are. We, we, we're made, we're born for this stuff. Um, we're, pro- we're probably not born to do 100 miles uh, events, to be honest. Like it's right. not um, – I think that's, that's you know – we do those things because we want to find out where the limits are, but we're all made to be doing 10 to 20 Ks a day. I, I truly believe that that's what our bodies, you know, I often get so, oh, you'll be wearing out your joints. Well, my joints are fine and I've run 70,000 Ks and I don't have knee troubles and I don't, and, and where the problems come is when you don't do your strength training, when you don't do your mobility work. So, and, and in the past, that would have been working in the garden and stretching and lifting and all of those things that we uh, often just run and then we come and sit at our computer. And that's a 
a bit of a dangerous combination. Yeah, I think the argument that running is bad for your joints is definitely a misconception, right? Like, yeah. what if you actually look at the studies? That's basically an untrained person going from zero to ten miles, and it's like, yeah, you don't expect someone that's untrained to be able to become a pro, like a computer programmer, without some some, some probably some ego damage, not not necessarily physical damage, or you, you know, you go from not being able to bench press. Uh, 200 pounds expecting someone to just lift a lot of heavy weights yeah and that is actually a bit of a danger like i see people going oh i you know like we, we're i'm an ambassador for a race uh, next month that my my husband's running it as well um it's a uh, 80k and I'm, I'm watching some of the people who have signed up in in their striver accounts and they're not training and i'm like oh shoot we're going to have carnage because if you know, like you, you need to prepare your body, you, you know, like going out and running a half marathon because you're a fit young man and you do other stuff, you can get away with that. But that's not what, you know, like if you were extra, extrapolate that and go, well, next week I'm going to run a marathon, well, then we'll start running into trouble because you do need a structure and a build up and periodization and all those other good things to because your ligament, like your cardiovascular system will do it, no worries. Your ligaments and your tendons will not. Right, like it's not used to the pounding. One thing that I wanted to ask about, especially I'm curious in terms of talking to folks who've done incredible endurance feats, is the mindset during the bout. And I think you reflected upon it uh, just a little bit earlier where in the moment, there's oftentimes where you're in pain, you want to stop, you want to quit. I remember a conversation with Pete Jacobs, who was an Ironman world champ, talking about I'm trying to hearken back to a notion of gratitude, of love, and trying to pull up that emotion as he's trying to finish uh, some of these longer races. I'm interested in some of your mental tricks as you're you know, doing bad water, you're, you're 100 miles in, it's really hot. You're sick and dying. Are you in autopilot survival <laughs> mode? Yeah. Are you trying to recall... Uh, happy moments or are you more of like a david goggins where you're trying to recall like painful hate hateful moments are you a zen monk what are all your tricks i've got i've got a few tricks definitely and it's a bit of all of the above um uh, the gratitude one, he's a better man than me. <laughs> I find that quite hard, that one. I'm definitely a bit more David Goggins style <laughs> as far as, um, I'm, you know, especially in my early days when I was trying to prove something and, and wanting to be loved and accepted, basically, uh, and being okay. And, and so a lot of the motivation there was to prove that I could and that I was strong and that I was not useless. And that's a real. I don't, don't care even if it's a negative motivating factor, if you like, it's a negative rather than the gratitude one, but it's a powerful one because you will pull out all the stops. You know, you can hear that person's voice in your head going, you're useless. And you're like, you know, might be breaking down and you might be in hell pain. You're going, yeah, but I cannot let that, I cannot let him win. I cannot give up. And that can be a powerful force. Now, later on in my career, it became more things like doing things for a charity and often uh, especially doing things for a particular person um, who had a disability or something. That would get me going, you know, because I'd be like, well, hang on, you know, like I've run for, you know, kids with can- uh, cancer and things like that. Um then you start to pull on other things like I'm so grateful I don't have cancer and get over yourself because these kids are dying of cancer and going through chemo and, and all of this and they're putting a brave face on. Get your shit together, basically. And so you put things into perspective. One of the, A couple of the other tricks I use is um, uh, 
I used to, if I was really in a desperate situation in a race, I'd say to myself things like, okay, you've just crashed in a plane in the middle of the jungle or the desert or wherever you are, and you've got to run 200 Ks to save your mother because she needs help and she's stuck in that plane. Now, you're exhausted, you're, you're knackered. Um, are you going to quit when your mother's life depends on it or are you going to find the power to run another step? And the answer was always, I would not give up. I would fight. I would find another, another way to take another step. And therefore, you can do it. It's all a matter of the motivation. It's all a matter of how bad do you want this thing. And if somebody, one of your loved one's life depended on it, you can bet your bottom dollar uh, that you would run that 200K or that, that 100 mile or whatever it is because you wouldn't give up. You, you'd die trying, wouldn't you? You know, and that when you can pull pull those resources out of yourself, um, and and fight through those that, that constant battle. So when I'm running along, uh, I'm often got this battle. But I call them the lion and the snake. And you got the lion who's going, "Come on, you can do it. You're you're so strong and you're amazing, and you got this." And all the positive people that have been in your life represent that line. And then you've got the snake on the other side going, you're useless. You're never going to make this. What are you thinking? You couldn't do this. Sit down. No one's going to care. All of the sort of bargainings going on in your mind. And as the day wears on and the nights or the, or the days wear on, eh, this battle gets bigger and louder and stronger and that snake tends to get more and more control and you're just hanging on for dear life trying to not let that snake beat you. When I ran through New Zealand and I had, you know, 2,250 Ks ahead of me and I had been busy, so busy with the logistics of it that I hadn't actually thought about running what it takes to run 500 Ks a week and I got to the start line and then all of a sudden it sat on me like an elephant and I had a panic attack and my mum was, and this is like five minutes before I meant to start, I've got all the media, I've got the crews, I've got everything, right? Been planning this for, for months uh, raising money for charities, etc., And I just had a meltdown. I went over to my mum and I'm bawling and I can't breathe and I'm having a panic attack. And, and I go, mum, I, I can't, you know, I can't, 2,200, I, I can't do it. And, you know, cry my eyes out. And she like, you know, as mums do, puts me in a bear hug and she says, stop, 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 stop. I want you to think about getting to that power pole up there. That's all you have to do right now. You don't have to run 2,250 k's. You have to run to that power pole. And then we're going to get through the first half an hour. And then we're going to get to lunchtime. And then we'll see. And by doing that, she pulled my focus back into the here and the now instead of projecting into the future, which was overwhelming and terrifying. And that's how we broke it down step by step. And there were many times along that journey where the pain was just so intense and my body was breaking down and I just could hardly even... I got to a point at one stage where I couldn't even walk without sticks and I had to, you know, let alone run. Uh, and But I, I, I managed to just keep moving forward. And, and then all of a sudden after two weeks, my body hit the absolute rock bottom, bottom and then it started to actually improve again. It was like, um, and I've heard other ultra marathoners like Charlie Engel and Ray Sahab who crossed the Sahara say, so, you know, it, got, it gets worse, 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 and then you hit the bottom and it's almost like your body goes, well, she hasn't quit, so we better get our shit together. We better get we better get organized here because she's keeping going anyway. We're throwing everything at her and she's still going. So we have to – and then I actually got better and better as the whole time went on and got stronger. And by the end of that race, I was actually – or that run – I was actually stronger than when I had been in the first two weeks, which was really bizarre to understand. Yes, these are some of the tricks, like, you know, association and disassociation, like taking yourself off to your happy place. 
I often go swimming with the whales in my head, you know, some place that's completely away from what I'm in dreaming. And then I would, if I have a crew, which is some races you do, you know, they'd be telling me stories and trying to keep my mind occupied so that I just keep out of my own body. And then other times I'd be in my body and checking in with it and saying, am I, am I drinking enough? Am I, you know, have I had my uh, electrolytes? Have I had my whatever, you know, enough food? Um, so you're doing all that checklist stuff going through your head. So it's a, it's a combination of all these things to keep fighting through the hard moments. Don't for a minute believe that you get to the Zen state of flow and you stay there and that's it and you're just amazing. There are people that do, and like the guys that run the self-transcendence race, 3,100 miles in New York City, um, that's what they're aiming for, the Zen state of transcending their body. I've never got there. <laughs> I've, I've tried, and they would have, I would have, I would have moments of it, or even a couple of hours of it, when I'm completely in this flow state where I can't even feel my body. I'm, it's like a camera, like my eyes are like a camera, and I'm just floating through the air. But those times are short lived, unfortunately for me, because I haven't cracked the, the the code. I haven't probably meditated enough to get there, but. It, um, it is probably there and it is probably doable. Definitely an interesting spiritual, I think, concept that I think I, I've tapped into mm-hmm. very rarely as well, where just everything just feels easy and it's like, wow, I could just do this forever. And if you can hold that, that seems like it would be a magical if you, one could tap into that consistently. Mm-hmm. One of the things I, I thought was interesting was this notion of just breaking down, decomposing a large problem into smaller and smaller bits. And I think this is an, an adage or a maxim that I think everyone is heard about through teachers or stories. But I think one thing that I've found through people that really lived well-lived lives is that you have such visceral experience, pain, scar tissue that anchors that adage to a real experience. And I think that when I when I step back and think about all the different, whether that's a Zen Cohen or these books with all these best practices and best tips, they're very curt nice little encapsulated sentences, but they're really almost raisins or all the juice behind those simple statements of, hey, break down the marathon into just running to the next lamppost. Someone who's never done that is like, oh, of course, that makes sense. I get it. But they actually don't get it. Um, and I, I, it's, And it sounds like you've collected so many of these adages with just truly a broad spectrum of life experiences, both very, very positive and some that are, 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 are quite, yeah, quite sad and quite unfortunate. It kind of opening up, I mean, are there other kind of interesting adages that you just feel like you have real adaptive understanding because you've just lived yeah, through it? Yeah, you're so right. I mean, sometimes there's glib Instagram posts that you see with little quotes and, you know, I've, I've used them too. Uh, and you don't actually um, – it's hard to convey – the actual experience and until you've actually lived through it. And, and these things have a real value, like breaking things down into, into minor chunks and keeping your focus close to you and, and so on. Um, but it is hard for someone who hasn't experienced it to actually know what the hell you're talking about until you're faced with a situation. But the more you learn about this stuff, then when you are, when you are doing your next marathon, ultra marathon, Jeff, you will have more of these tools already in your head. And you say, oh, Lisa said, have a go at trying this. And then you try it out in your own body and you realize, hmm, this, this is working. I'm going to work more on this aspect of this tool, you know. And you do get better at things once you've actually had the experience yourself. Um, I did want to share um, one really 
life-changing event with uh with your audience if i may jeff and go into the story with, with my mum please yeah so you know throughout the, the interview i've mentioned my mum a couple of times as being this amazing wonderful woman um and she's always supported me in all my crazy endeavors and so on and never ever limited me in my belief of what i can do or was just just an amazing woman and she four years ago had a um aneurysm which is a bleed in the brain and was rushed to hospital we got that horrible phone call um rushed up there mum's collapsed you know the ambulance driver said to the doctor i think she's having a stroke uh the doctor decided to ignore that and said ah she's just having a migraine um which was an absolute disastrous misdiagnosis if you like um we spent six hours in the ed there not knowing i got caught out i i didn't know what to ask for. I didn't know what was happening to her. I knew she was in deep trouble and the doctor was just ignoring us. Painkillers weren't working. She was in extreme pain. And I had a paramedic friend um, who'd crewed for me on, on many of my races and I rang her and said, please, can you get up here? I don't know what's, I don't know what to ask for, but there's something major wrong with mum. So she came up and took one look at her and said, oh, she's having a neurological event of some sort. Went and got this doctor and shook him out of his stupidity and said, get her a CT scan right now. She's having a stroke or something like that. Um, they took her through after six hours and had a CT scan and it came back blood right throughout the, the brain aneurysm um, and they didn't expect that she was going to live. It was, you know, horrific state of affairs by, by this time. Um, and that experience was for me like my mum's life's hanging in the balance and I've been caught short not knowing what to ask for, what to do and being too damn polite um, to, to push the doctors for, for more and, and it's cost, it could cost a, my mother her life. We had, a, we had another um, 12 hours wait for the air ambulance to come because they had to transfer her to another hospital because we live in a small town and it's, you know, we didn't have the things. It took 18 hours to get her into there. And in that time, and I just like, if, if, if I get a second chance to help my mum bring her back, then I'll do everything in my power to, to, to make this right. And we had, uh, she had a operation and she was in and out. She had two, two operations in the next couple of days and she was in and out of a coma fighting for her life in a critical condition. They didn't think she was going to make it. And in this time I started to study everything about brains and aneurysms and brain rehabilitation and everything I could possibly find on our wonderful world of the internet and Dr. Google. And I started like, I'm not going to be caught short again. And upshot of it was she, after three weeks, she stabilized and she was taken out of the ICU and she'd survived, but she had basically no higher function, Jeff. She had no, um, she had a couple of words, but no real speech. She had no memory of who she was, what she was, or that I was a daughter or anything like that. She had um, no um, ability to control any of her bodily functions, like massive, massive brain damage. And after three months in the hospital, they said, look, she's never going to do anything again, um, you know, make her as comfortable as possible. She's 74. The brain damage is so extensive. Um, we have to put her into a hospital-level care, age facility, and, yeah, that's it. And I, I, as you might tell, I'm quite a stubborn person. I was like, no way am I leaving my mum 
in, in a place like that and I'm taking her home and they said, look, you're not going to cope. She's 24-7 round-the-clock care. So I had a hell of a battle on my hands to get her home. And in this time, I'm studying everything uh, around um, supplements for brain injury, for hyperbaric oxygen therapy, um, sleep apnea, all of these things that could be affecting her. And I worked out that she likely had sleep apnea and she was sleeping 20 hours a day anyway. Uh, the doctors ignored me again. I got an outside consultant who came in, did a sleep apnea test, and it came back severe sleep apnea, and she was knocking off her brain cells. And so when, when we got that onto her in the CPAP machine, she started to have a little tiny bit more function. And I was like, right, what else can oxygen do? Now, I've done a lot of races, or three races, sorry, at altitude in the Himalayas, and I know what it is to, um, you know, have uh, oxygen deficit. And I'd um, had a, a situation where I'd been in one of these altitude training tents for a number of weeks sleeping at night, and I'd been up too high at 6,500 metres, and I'd knocked off a lot of my brain cells and ended up with a hypoxic brain concussion myself and ended up with infections going crazy because when your body doesn't have enough oxygen, it produces a lot, of, a lot more bacteria and infections run wild. And I was seeing this in my mum, and I'm thinking, she's not getting enough oxygen despite the sleep apnea machine and everything. What else can I do to get more oxygen? They wouldn't let me put supplemental oxygen on here. They said she didn't need it. And so I was at odds with the, the doctors from, from the get-go. They were feeding her absolute crap. Something like they, they had like basically corn syrup or something. I mean, if you look at the bags of, of, of yeah. the hospital intubated food, it's literally like corn syrup is one of the main ingredients. It's kind of it's, shocking, It's absolutely actually. shocking for brain injury, actually, Jeff, on that note, yeah. because when you put glucose into a person who has a brain injury, it suppresses their own ketone production, and the ketones are the only things. When you have a, a brain injury, you have a metabolic um um, dysregulation where you can't use glucose. So by giving someone glucose, you're actually suppressing the little amount of ketones that they do have, and that was all their brain was running on. And they're, they're giving you glucose, right, and ensure and all this crappy stuff. I didn't know that at that time, but this is why research is important. I, I now know that. Um, I did start to put her on fish oils and um, a keto diet as soon as I could and got her out of hospital, um, high fats, you know, good MCT oils and um, ketones, um, exogenous ketones etc um long story short she we were finally got her home after a, a massive fight at the hospital to get her home i had to get my brother who looks a bit like dwayne johnson to help me convince the doctors <laughs> to uh give us the resources we wanted which is just a caretaker in the morning and and, and someone in the evening so to, to help with their personal cares um and we got this the got her home then I'd been studying uh, hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And now this is a super powerful. People go and research hyperbaric. It, it is amazing for brain injury, also for gangrene and burns, uh, diabetic wounds. They use this as a totally un underutilized uh, therapy. And I found out that this could help brain injury. I studied uh, the work of Dr. Harch in America, um, who has written The Oxygen Revolution as a book on hyperbaric uh, and I thought this is mum's chance if I can get her hyperbaric access to a hyperbaric chamber I could maybe save her and of course we didn't have one in our hometown or so I thought um, and then I found a dive company that had one because they use these for dive accidents when divers get the bends and we have a, a port and a 
commercial dive facility. And so I approached these guys and I said, can I use your facility? This is my situation. They said, yep, sign a legal waiver. We know the power of hyperbaric. We know it's powerful. Uh, We'll give you access to it. These are kind, amazing people gave me access to this chamber. And so as soon as I got her out of the hospital, I took her down to this factory, stuck her on a forklift and, and put her into this big hyperbaric chamber. You know, everyone thought I was completely nuts, as you can imagine. This fragile, yeah. delicate lady who could hardly even sit. Um, stuck her in this chamber. We had 33 sessions over the next uh, few weeks. After 33 treatments, she started to come back. Like I, All I can say is that she started to wake up. She started to have words. She started to remember who I was. She started to move her arms and she wasn't getting up and walking, but she was doing uh, she was doing things and I could see a flicker of life in her eyes again. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is working. And then they had to take the chamber off on a contract and I lost access to it. And so then I, I, I mortgaged the house and I bought a hyperbaric chamber, but I bought a mild one, Jeff. That only goes to 1.5 atmospheres. That was all I could get access to. Um, but this is perfect for brain injury, actually. It's it's almost as good. I'd say it's about 90% as good as what the, the big ones are. Um, for brain injury because you don't need the the really low depths um, for brain injury. You only need 1.5. So anyway, I put her through another 250 sessions over the next couple of years, and I still continue to put her through. As she started to come back, I had more to work with. So then I studied functional neurology. I studied um, everything to get her balance and spatial awareness back. I studied nootropics, which you know a lot about. Um, I studied, you know, the ketone diet and keto and I did physio with her. So I developed a, a protocol and a program, basically an eight-hour program every day that I started to put her through as she started to come back. And I've tried to stay one step ahead of her therapy. Now, I'm no doctor, but like you, Jeff, I just go hard out into the research and do deep dives and find the answer. When I don't have an answer, I go and I find somebody who knows the answer. And one of the selfish reasons I started my podcast was so that I could have amazing people like you and, and doctors and scientists on there so that I could get access to the best minds in the world for this type. Don't give away our secret, right? <laughs> don't give away our secret. That's, that's honestly one of the best perks of having a podcast It's you get to great, meet great people. Exactly. Yeah. It's true. It is. It's the it's the it's the greatest reason to do a podcast. Um, and so I would get these experts in different fields, and I would learn from them. And um, they would, you know, a lot of people helped me with different aspects that they were specialists in. And together we've 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 created a miracle. My mum now four years on. My mum is completely normal. She has she's reading, writing, walking. She walks a couple of kilometers a day. She goes to the gym six days a week. She has her full driver's license back. She's regained her peripheral vision even. All her reaction tests are back to pre-aneurysm levels. And this is 78 years old, Jeff. Like she's this, you know, neuroplasticity in someone of this age is pretty unheard of i had one example of this in dr norman deutsch's book um the brain that heals itself um of uh dr bucky rita who was a scientist whose father had a brain injury a massive stroke and he had brought him back and he was in his early 60s and he had taught him so i knew that somebody in the world had done what i needed to do but they were like 14 years younger um so i I had nobody really who who could pave the way for me but I had at least that, that sort of information. And so now mum is, yeah, full driver's license, full power of attorney back over her life, full independence. We still work every single day. Um, and if, unless I'm traveling for work, I'm working with her, you know, pretty much five to six hours a day now. 
um, and we still have to keep the, the pedal to the metal. There's a few things like her foot drags and so on on her right side and she, you know, has has a few issues. Um, but I've got my mum back for crying out loud. And they told me she – it's an amazing, miraculous story and I, and I was – so uh, amazed at this whole journey that I ended up writing a book and it's called Relentless. It tells the story of bringing my mum back and the lessons that I took from the running. So there's a lot of the running stories in there, um, but it takes some of those lessons and how I applied it in this real world situation. Because if I hadn't had that that resilience, if I hadn't had the the belief that the human body and mind are capable of far more than what the average person thinks it is, um, then I would have listened to the naysayers and I would have given up. But because I've seen I've seen crazy things like blind people running across the Sahara, someone on crutches doing the marathon de sables with multiple sclerosis. I've seen a dude run across Death Valley with one leg. I've, uh, you know, I've seen people with hip replacements, people with broken back, and I know the power of the human spirit if they don't give in to the naysayers. And that's why I was so passionate to get about getting this book out because I wanted to share those mental insights plus all the protocols that I used for mum and and give other people hope who are going through whatever the difficult time is that they're going through, whatever crisis. Yeah, that's an incredible turnaround and incredible end result here. I mean, my understanding of the prognosis is that if you kind of misdiagnose an aneurysm for that length of time, it's, I mean, either deadly or I think what it sounded like from your conversation with the doctors, they essentially were saying, hey, we're kind of giving up. She's going to be a kind of a vegetable, like kind of. That's uh, exactly the words they used. Expectation. <laughs> and then to turn around and, and and see that now at what, 78, she's a fully. Fully normal. She's back. Yep. Have you gone back to the doctors? <laughs> have you tried to get like a uh, get them to have buy you tried to turn this into a case study? <laughs> yeah, um, I, yeah. I think it's just like this is not even even a buy in or show that hey you're wrong. This is more of a hey this is something that a lot of people could potentially learn about to adjust the standard of care and to help improve the medical system. Right? It's just like what you have here is a very interesting n equals one. You know, I, I think the critics would say, well, it's not randomized, it's, it's not controlled. Fair it's enough, fair enough. I think that's a valid critique. It's fair critique, but there's clearly some signal here, right? There's definitely something that was anomalous in terms of the turnaround. Can we actually take lessons and take protocols and potentially get them through more of a randomized controlled trial to see if this replicates in an, a, a, across a broader population? But at least there's some signal and hope for any open-minded scientist that's trying to say, hey, like, let's improve the current standard of care. Absolutely. I'm curious in terms of as you've been sharing and working the publishing process, have you come back to the traditional uh, standard of care practitioners, clinicians, and help them adjust potentially their standard of care? So I've, 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 I've desperately tried to do that. And um, one of the reasons, you know, the main reason for this book is to try to get, um, you know, a movement around this because this is – Everybody who's going through any sort of brain injuries is facing the same problems, whether it be on a lesser scale or, or like this. And, you know, what I've found is there are so many amazing doctors in the USA. And unfortunately, they're in the USA. And I, <laughs> I um, people like Dr. Harch. I had a, a um, Dr. Carbon Charpik on my podcast two weeks ago, who I highly recommend for your show, actually, Jeff. Um, and he has written a book called Concussion Rescue. And I was reading the the just the chapter titles as I first got this and going, 
holy shit, this is exactly the protocol I've used, and it's been put into a book by a doctor. Thank God. And I, and I was absolutely ecstatic to have him on the show. And he ratified all of the things that I had been through. And he, has, and he is desperately trying to get this information out there because this is a relevance for people with dementia and Alzheimer's just as much as it has relevance for stroke and, and aneurysm victims and concussion victims. This is a right across the board information for brain health. Um, and, and so I have failed at, in, in the local doctor level but I'm starting to be asked to speak at medical conferences. I've just been invited to speak at the World um, Alzheimer's and Dementia Conference, and I'm hoping that that will actually happen um, because I'm desperate for the doctors to understand the limitations in our system, and um, a lot of it is, is a lack of resources, and it's also sort of institutionalized ways of thinking and the siloed ways of thinking. And now there's some amazing doctors like Dr. Charpek, um, but also like Dr. Mark Hyman, um, David Perlmutter, Dr. Perlmutter and Dr. Austin Perlmutter. And they're, they're putting these protocols together now and they're putting them in the mainstream. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the Broken Brain um, uh, series uh, by Dr. Mark Hyman. Uh, and Drew Purohit from uh, Broken Brain, the podcast, and, and the work that they're doing, that type of information is starting to now permeate through, but it's so slow. As you know, even in this day and age with social media and the power of all this, I am one voice, I am one story, and the doctors will generally go, ah, it's not, it's not relevant. There's no clinical studies. We didn't have spec scans. We weren't, you know, because we didn't have access to any of that sort of to categorize um, to see this process, um, so I don't have any proof except the videos that I took, my little amateur iPhone videos that I took all the way through this process. And I'll send you a little, just a two-minute clip, Jeff, uh, that you might want to put in the notes, and you'll see Mum going from not being able to, you know, sit properly to Mum being able to do a little fifty-meter run, you know, um, and, and they can see for themselves that that transformation, and it's unfortunately very amateurish and very, you know, iPhone family uh, videos, um, and that's all I've got is proof. The rest is just my anecdotal stories. Um, but I'm hoping that I can add my voice to the movement. I can add my voice to those of like like Dr. Hyman and, and Co. Um, who are changing this world, and even what you're doing in the nootropics um, space. You know, this is, isn't just about uh, brain injury, but optimal brain performance in the keto space. You know, that, that information, these, you, you combine a keto diet with hyperbaric and nootropics, and you've got a combination for a great healing potential with brains. Yeah, I think, that, like, I think that's what's exciting. There's clearly much more to be understood and much more science to be done. And I think this is how, if you again, look at the history of science, who knows if the Newton story of an apple falling on his head made him think about gravity, but it's just these observations, these interesting signals that guide us towards testing and understanding and making good hypotheses and testing them. And I think that especially in this fasting and turnaround story, it, it's clearly signal here and it's clearly I think it sounds like it's being replicated across other folks who, who, who have, have been going through similar protocols. And it's like, okay, hopefully we can have this body of evidence to build momentum to hopefully change standard of care. And I think that's like, I think ultimately what we all want here. It's not like, 
I don't think you have like a dogmatic reason to make something up. It's just like, okay, this really helped my mom. Other people should know about it. And yes, if people want more evidence, then let's run the studies. People want to try something because they're desperate. Here's a potential option. I think that's ultimately what I believe. It's like the world's going to bend towards truth. And if we can accelerate us, like the humanity as a whole, to get to truth faster because it will help more people, I'm all about that. Exactly. And, you know, this is what the power of the, the day and age that we're living with, these podcasts and, and all the research that is now becoming available, we're starting to see the power of the just just people movement. You know, this is a movement of the people to start to change the systems. Um, and this is not to, you know, we had a discussion on our show about, you know, some failings in the systems. And we're not pointing the, the finger at any one particular person here. But there, what I want people to take away from this story is, is take ownership of your own health. Research, even if you're not science nerds like Jeff and I, Go and, and find the research. Do your due diligence. You, you, people spend more time buying a car and researching the car than they will for their own health. And for me, that's ridiculous. You know, instead of just taking somebody's word for it, your local doctor's word for it, that this particular drug is going to fix all your woes, how about just looking a little bit deeper, finding out your own research and taking ownership of your own health and then, you know, implementing some good basic healthy structures to your diet, to your nutrition, your 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 exercise regimes, the things that we know work for a start. And then we can't wait I could not wait with mum's situation for the clinical trials to come through. I had to weigh the risks, and I and I, I did play doctor in a lot of cases. You know, I had to weigh the risks and and make educated decisions. And a lot of it was like, well, what's the alternative? The alternative is she's going to die very soon. You know, so uh, it was that much of a desperate situation that I was willing to to take some risks. You know, to get some something back. And I and I've I've, I've been criticised immensely for for a lot of the stuff that I did and for pushing pushing my mum so hard and, and putting her through a torturous regime of training. Um, but I believe that no matter how old you are, whether you're five or you're 105, people need challenge. They need goals. They need things to be working uh, working towards. When we make old people, older people, our treasured, valued older citizens who should be treasured in our society and who often aren't, when we make them feel like you're past your use-by date and you're no longer useful and we're just going to make you comfortable because that's what we do as humans, but we're not going to actually treat you like as a person with a history and a story and a wisdom to share, um, it, it's terribly patronising and horrific. And, um, you know, I come from the Maori culture in New Zealand where our elders are very respected and loved and revered for their wisdom. And unfortunately, that's not the general society that I live in. You know, it's within my culture, but not within the wider New Zealand culture and, and I believe in, in, in other places as well. We have this attitude, well, you use your past your use-by dates, and certainly when it comes to resources and medical funding. Um, I had to fight like crazy for the resources because she was an older adult. And for me, that that's we've got to do better. We've got to do better and we've got to respect our elders. They're the ones who made us who we are, you know, and we're, we're all heading there, you know. We're all getting older. Do you want to be treated like that? Ask yourself, is that what you want for yourself, for your loved ones? 
then you know we've got to do better in our standard of care. I think for for, for older people, and that's a completely different topic I could rant on about too. <laughs> Absolutely, and I I think the title of the book, Relentless, very apt title, not just <laughs> Thanks, in terms mate. of the relentlessness, in terms of you, you know taking care of your mom, but also just your life story, just not stopping, being relentless, and. It sounds like you have a number of projects going on all the time. So what's in store for you in 2020? Where do folks follow what you're up to? Where do uh, what, are, what are some of the upcoming projects you're really excited about in 2020 and, and, and onwards? Yeah, look, I'm really excited from a business perspective. So we're doing deep dives and we, we teach already um, epigenetic testing and do that with our clients. And now we have an online run training program. So we're expanding that and growing our business from that point of view. Um, we're looking at a couple of uh, venture capital partners and, and um, going into the pro-aging space and looking into developing programs uh, around piecing together some of the, 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 the pieces of the puzzle we already have in place with our epigenetics and DNA testing and uh, supplements and, and so on. Um, so we're not quite sure where these negotiations and things are going to take us, but it's really exciting times for us as a company and we're starting to um, expand and grow quite fast and and that's bringing its challenges with it as well, (laughs) Um, as you would well know. Um, And it's exciting times for me on that front. So I'm not doing any long-distance running myself personally anymore because I have – um, I have to look after my mum still seven days a week and run these other companies. So um, that combination is enough for me to, to, to cope with at the moment. Um, and that's okay. You know, we all have times in life where sometimes I, I, I catch myself going, oh, I'm a has-been, I, I can't do it anymore, you know. And then I like pull yourself together. You know, you've got a mission now. You're on another mission and that requires sacrifice. And that sacrifice is I can't go off on expeditions at the moment and do more crazy stuff. But that's okay. I've done enough. And my body's certainly said to me a few times I've had enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, really excited to for the, the, the time of the day and age that we're living in and getting to network with people like you is just gold. It really is. I really love this sort of stuff. It just it, it inspires me to keep going. 100%. Well, I can't think of a better note to end on. So, Lisa, really Again, I had a lot of fun on your podcast and equally as, if not more fun, actually, just listening to your story, reinvigorated, re-inspired of, of what we're doing, what you're doing. So thank you for taking the time. We'll have to get in touch in person and maybe do a little bit of a, a light ultra marathon together. Absolutely. I would love to train you up for one. <laughs> Anytime you need some help and structure and coaching, uh, reach out to us. And um, You know, I think I uh, hope now that we will stay connected, Jeff, because I really admire the work you do on this podcast. I love listening to all your interviews. It's some gold in here. Um, and I just love being around inspiring and, you know, inspirational people who are out there empowering other people and doing what they love. So I think we'll stay connected connected for sure and I'd love to invite you down to New Zealand at some stage when you want a holiday so let me know (laughs) all right I'll hold you to that all right thank you so much thanks thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HVMN podcast if you're interested to learn more about HVMN and our offerings visit hvmn.com slash pod 
please remember to subscribe. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please give this video a like and remember to hit that bell to get notified whenever we post. We also have a dedicated Discord server, which you can join by first taking a short survey, and then I'll personally send you an invite to join the community there. The link to that survey will be in the description along with any other relevant links. And we'll see you all next week.